Hello, everybody, and, and welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. We're, we're finally back again, and uh, I know I'm really excited about the book we're going to talk about uh, today. Uh, it's The Leopard by Giuseppe di Lampedusa, and it was published uh, in Italy in 1958. Um, and unfortunately, one of the reasons I wanted to sort of bring it up is I... I don't know how widely it's it's still read uh, in the English-speaking world. I know it's, you know, a classic in Italy, uh, a continual bestseller. Um, but I, I, I hope that, uh, you know, we can help spur people on to read this book. So, so The Leopard was published in 1958, um, and it was actually published uh, after the death of Lampedusa, which which in itself is a, is a real tragedy. He was born to an aristocratic family in Sicily in 1896 and he died in 1957 and so um, through his life he really uh, witnessed um, again uh, in a tragic way for him the decline of aristocratic life in Italy um, at his birth of course um, the, the the state of Italy was uh, a very new uh, new thing a new country um, Sicily had been ruled for centuries by uh, Greeks, Arabs, um, the Spanish, um, also by various monarchies in Europe. So the book um, is both, a, I think, a, a personal exploration of um, his own family, um, the decline and sadness that he felt, as well as a sort of exploration of, of what is what does Italy mean? And, and from what I understand, when the book was published in 1958, um, Italy was still reeling from uh, Mussolini, uh, the war, and the fascist regime, and was still, I think, soul-searching about who the hell are we? And this book really kind of stirred things up because it, it actually put into question this whole idea that the uh, you know, democratic, independent revolution that happened in the late 19th century for Italy was a good thing. But it's not a book about politics, and, and that's part of what I love about it. So Roman, um, The Leopard, in, in a certain sense, is a very simple book. It focuses on uh, a central character, an incredibly complex, engaging, amazing character, uh, the prince, uh, Prince Selina, also known as Don Fabrizio. Um, and we sort of catch up with him in the 1860s uh, in, Sic in Sicily and Palermo at the, uh, the family Selina uh, Palace in Palermo. He's middle age. He's 45 years old. Uh, he has several uh, daughters of marriageable age. He has a, a, a nephew named Tancredi, who is a kind of uh, ne'er-do-well, but also um, somewhat interested in this revolutionary spirit uh, sweeping across uh, Italy and Sicily, um, but probably not in, in a particularly deep way. Don't forget, Rob, but, by the way, he also has sons. He has uh, two yes. sons, two or three sons, I'm not sure. Yes. And uh, mm -hmm. one of them is actually kind of a of a minor importance, so to speak, in at least one little passage. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so, you know, where to start with this book? I mean, I'll just throw out a few themes, Roman, and maybe you can kind of take it from there. I mean, the, the book is also concerned with death, um, the, the, a kind of Sicilian uh, fascination with death, um, the prince with his disappointment with life, with the decline of his aristocratic family. Um, and and there's, a, there's a kind of 
religious church theme of, of church relics in a kind of attachment to death in that way. Um, there's the decline of the aristocracy. Um, uh, there's so much to kind of dig into here. Um, but I love this book, and I don't want to turn it into some kind of PhD thesis. I mean, <laughs> you read the book, man. What, what did you love about it? Well, first I of all, I have, I have you to thank uh, for convincing me to read this book because, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've heard of it, you know, obviously many years ago as a, as a reader. And I just thought, hmm, an historical novel, you know, about yeah. Italy, not really my, 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 my thing. Um, but I'm so glad that I've read it because it's not a historical novel. In fact, the yeah. uh, uh, the author insists to letters to friends that, look, it's not an historical novel, right? Uh, but it is, of course, uh, takes place in history with a strong desire to be a historical like not you know sort of outside of history, and this there's this all, constant tension in this novel between sort of the the permanent, the eternal, and the temporal and the the, the fallible things you know life, um, uh, and so and it's kind of this aristocracy, like, like you mentioned aristocracy, but it's seen from within, you know, because yeah. again the author is aristocratic bearing, and and to all intents and purposes the author is. Don Fabrizio, you know, he's kind of based it on sort of himself, um, yes. even though, of course, and it takes place way earlier, you know, in, in, it's not in his lifetime or and, earlier. And totally. And it's it's written in the third person. And, and I'm sure you must have, you know, noticed this. And it's, it's it was a bit odd as you start working your way through the novel. It, it's, you know, third person kind of omniscient sort of view of things, the God view. And then occasionally, you know, and again, we're set in 1860. And then occasionally the the omniscient narrator will sort of kind of cut in a little bit and mm-hmm. say, well, you know, and we now know that this young character 40 years later ended up living a, a miserable life. Right. Or, you know, you know, this would change in the 20th century when so you. Yeah, the palace, the of, palace, you know, the gods in the palace thinking they're immortal. And yeah. little did they know that in 1943, a bomb manufactured in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is going to put an end to this whole palace thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. Yeah, that, that's – yeah, exactly. And in fact, that is – that was true to life with Lampedusa. The, um, the family uh, seat was destroyed uh, in 1943, yeah, by a, by a bomb in, made in Pittsburgh. It, mm-hmm. it actually really symbolizes this idea of – what had stood for centuries, what had represented the patrimony of uh, aristocratic life of, of this particular family, could be so crudely destroyed by uh, an upstart country like the United States and their crude manufacturing facility. It, mm-hmm. it really, uh, it, it's almost you know life imitating art there. Right, right. And as you alluded to, Rob, you know the, this whole character narrator. Split. Uh, I think it really adds a, a, a hugely rich layer to the novel, where Don Fabrizio, you know, he's he's this uh, huge figure, both literally and metaphorically, um, where he he's very his attitude towards life is kind of ironic. He's always, you know, he's, it's it's there's a lot of irony involved in his outlook on life. At the same time, the narrator, <laughs> um, not the character, but the narrator, is also also has this irony. So you have this doubled irony, this kind of yeah. double pane window that you're looking through. And it's, you know, things are very distorted through it. But you also, this distortion also adds to the richness of the novel. 
Yeah. Um, where you kind of, as a reader, you get to be privy to this double irony. Uh, yeah. And it's very satisfying as a reader, you know? You know, and, and as I mentioned, one of the larger themes is this shift that's going on in, you know, in Italian or Sicilian society at the time, which, again, more importantly, not the historical angle, but almost the shift that's going on in the prince's perception of reality and almost his pride. And there's this really great line uh, that you can dig in forever. And uh, so the family has uh, their main house in Palermo. And then like any aristocratic family, they'll have their country estate. And so um, one of the big pieces of the novel is, um, you know, the revolutionaries kind of move into Palermo. And, you know, the prince, you know, again, being a powerful person, kind of is able to negotiate his way and say, well, you know, I'm going to take the family out to our country estate in Donna Fugata, which is a uh, an annual sort of rite of passage. They leave one of the sons to look after the Palermo Palace. And so they go out to um, this town. And again, he owns the whole town. So the the church, the mayor, um, the inhabitants, I mean, it's, it's, they're all owe their, um, their livelihood, their homes, their traditions to the Salinas family. So he, you know, he arrives and they, they greet him. Uh, it's an annual kind of ritual. Hello, welcome, that kind of thing. And um, one of the really telling uh, sort of incidents is that he, um, he realized that a change is coming. You know, he, he know, he's seen what's happened in Palermo and he's starting to rethink his relationship to the, uh, you know, what essentially are his feudal kind of uh, inhabitants, so to speak. Mm. And he arrives in Donna Fugata and um, a very significant little shift happens, which I think sort of starts to indicate his, his decline. You know, usually he shows up in Donna Fugata and he, you know, has to, for lack of a better phrase, kick a little ass, you know, just remind people he's in charge, he's back, you know, make sure everything in the palace and in the church is kind of squared away. And uh, there's this one passage that sort of indicates this subtle decline in his uh, prestige. Uh, it's towards the end, right? It's end the, right yeah, at the well, end. Yeah, well, no, in the middle here, he oh, says, okay. um, uh, and the prince who had found Donna Fugata unchanged was found very much changed himself, for never before would he have issued so cordial an invitation. And this is him inviting mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. some of the uh, political non-aristocratic people to dine with him that night. So it said, he was found very much changed himself, for never before would he have issued so cordial an invitation, and from that moment, invisibly began the decline of his prestige. So um, these subtle shifts in his pride, in his social place, but I think in the larger Sicilian society are taking place. And I, I, I really feel like this is what I think it's a sad book in many ways, and I think Lampedusa is, of course, sad about his own family's decline, the the bombing of his house. But I think there's this incredible sadness about everything that is lost when centuries of tradition are are sort of cut. Um, And I, you know, I have uh, uh, some familiarity with Japan, and there's a sadness in Japan that. It's hard, I think, even for the Japanese to articulate, but um, uh, with World War II, 
it wasn't simply that there was an adjustment in Japanese society. There was actually a cleavage. There's, there's Japan before World War II and the occupation by the, uh, the U.S. and after. And it, it's an irrevocable loss. I mean, of course, Japan is still Japan in many ways, but it's entirely changed. Mm. And, I, and I think this is what the book also is really trying to think about and, and absorb. And I, and I guess that's why it was so controversial in 1958 in Italy is I think the Italians hadn't fully absorbed um, the change that had happened 60 years prior. Right, they're still they're still kind of digesting it. Um, yeah, and you know the, the I, I was reading a little bit about this you know book, um, and apparently uh, Marxists really loved this book because um, remember when it was published. You know, Marxism was still in Italy was still kind of a big force, um, but it's definitely you know I, I don't think it's a good interpretation. I don't think it's the right interpretation. At least not the it doesn't feel right to me. Um, because the prince, Don Fabrizio, he rejects kind of you know, this, this talk in one of the chapters about about you know what's going on in, in Italy, and he kind of rejects the idea that the feudal class structures and a backward mode of production kind of explains what's wrong with Sicily. Yeah, uh, he rejects it. He kind of instead he just he um, he kind of blames it or doesn't blame it, but but sort of puts the finger on centuries of sort of uh, this, this, this invasion, all the invasions that Sicily has uh, experienced, the climate, the harsh climate yeah. uh, that you know, sort of crushes your ambitions and hopes, the landscape yes. uh, is so, so beautifully evoked, um, the harsh landscape, very harsh landscape of Sicily. Um, so, you know, it, it really seems yeah. to be... Uh, he does actually mention Marx, believe it or not, in the book. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that. This quote, oh. quote, some German Jew whose name I can't remember, end quote. <laughs> oh. it's, it's, yeah, it's because when, when, you know, when he's arguing about um, you know, the, the causes of, of all this turmoil with somebody, I forget who exactly, but he does mention Marx, some German Jew whose name I can't remember. Um, yes. You know, but it's, so it's not... And I think the movie, the movie, uh, relatively famous movie about this book that we were just talking about before recording, um, the director was a famous Marxist, so to speak, or had Marxist interpretations. And one of his other movies is also a good one, by the way, is the Death, uh, Death in Venice. Yeah. Um, but the movie, if if anybody's watching the movie or will watch the movie or has watched the movie. In the movie, I think it's a little bit skewed towards the Marxist interpretation. Yeah, there's definitely more yeah. of a class thing. Uh, yeah. But Don Fabrizio is above it all, so to speak. Yes. Right? Yes. And, I, dude, I think that's the key. And I think that's why the book will remain powerful is really, really great works of art. Never – They resist those kinds of things. It, yeah. They resist ideologies, yeah. Yeah. right? And, and particularly in our world where ideologies are so – it's binary and it's very narrow and, and um, uh, exaggerated. I, there's, a, there's, a, there's probably three pages in the book, in the center of the book, where – one of the new uh, northern Italian representatives of this new government comes down to Sicily to kind of meet with the prince and is, you know, has all these ideas of like these wild Sicilians and, and is kind of freaked out um, and is kind of initially surprised to sort of find the prince, you know, a very civilized, you know, kind of wonderful dude. And I, his name was Chevalier. Yeah, Chevalier. Yeah, Chevalier. Yeah. Yeah. It yep. almost sounded like a French name. Um, 
but they're, they're, the prince kind of gets uh, a bit, uh, he, he kind of gets on his soapbox and sort of uh, lectures and gets a bit didactic with this visitor. But it, it gives you some of the greatest passages, I think, in the book, both about the Sicilian character and also mm-hmm. about, yeah, the, the landscape of Sicily. And you, you nailed it, man. It, he, he's saying, look, let's get above these, these rudimentary political discussions and it's the hum- the human story of Sicily that really is the story here. It's not left, right, monarchist, uh, revolutionary. And here's a couple of passages which I think are just delicious, man. So he says in terms of, you know, what's up with Sicilians, he's saying all Sicilian expression, even the most violent, is really wish fulfillment. Our sensuality is a hankering for oblivion. Our shooting and knifing, a hankering for death. Mm. Our laziness, our sp- spiced and drugged, sherbets a hankering for voluptuous immobility that is for death again our meditative air is that of a void wanting to scrutinize the enigmas of nirvana so yeah so these are people who have for lack of a better word kind of suffered and endured and they do not expect anything else and and you know i think for all intent and purposes, Sicily in 2018 is uh, the Alabama of Italy. <laughs> it is, <laughs> and, I, and I don't mean that. I don't mean to suggest that the people are uh, uncivilized or peasants. Right, or, right. No. But I think simply that they are cut off from the economic and social currents of, of the main country, in a sense, right. and are, are maybe more tradition bound. So, no disrespect to anyone from Alabama. Um, or from Sicily, but <laughs> exactly. You, you know, Roman. A quick aside: we we both had a mutual friend from Boston. Uh, her name was Jennifer, and her mother was from Bologna in the north of Italy. And her father was an American uh, Jewish American doctor. And I I remember uh, talking to her mother once and uh, saying, "Oh, you know, you, you know, living in the Boston area, you must find it comforting." We have uh, so many Italian Americans uh, in, in in Boston in the North End, et cetera. Great Italian culture, and in so many words, her response was, "Oh, the Italian Americans in Boston are from Naples and Sicily, mm. and, and they have no interest, no connection to me." The peasants. And I was kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's essentially what she said. I'm from Bologna. I'm from the North. I, I have no interest in in farmers. Mm. Um, so, so there's this, and then there's another passage where he he talks a little bit about the landscape. Um, which uh, kind of is captured here. It said, you know, uh, with Sicily, the atmosphere, the climate, the landscape of Sicily, those are the forces which have formed our minds together uh, with, and perhaps more than foreign dominations and ill-sorted rapes. This landscape, which knows no mean between sensuous slackness and hellish drought, which is never pretty, never ordinary, never relaxed, as a country made for rational beings to live in should be. Um, and again, also gets to his the, the, the rhythm of his prose, mm. uh, the command of his language, which is quite lovely. Um, well, you'd actually let, let's maybe take a step back a little bit and look at the structure yeah. the structure of the novel, right? It was a little yeah. bit uh, not ahead of its time, but it was. This is not a your standard realist nineteenth century novel. There's no you know linear narration. There's no plot really to speak of. What we yeah. get is we have these um, these scenes, these chapters that that set a certain mood and deepen that mood as you go along. Yes. 
And yes. so it's really it's written beautifully. Uh, great translation. I mean, my translation is pretty old, but it still it still holds up quite well. Um, and I really I really enjoy the writing itself. The the actual prose the, on the, on the sentence level was quite impressive. Again, speaking of the translation, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But it does seem to me that it's like I don't know. It's 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 set this whole mood and and sort of a bunch of uh, associations, uh, feelings, um, and a lot of it has to do with a lot of it's kind of paradoxical, right? Because we have the sort of the, the ideal, the eternal, you know, the prince, the, the Don Fabrizio. He's a he's an amateur astronomer that actually uh, is a. Uh, lauded. I mean, he got a prize that he'd go to travel to England to get a prize as an astronomer. Um, and he loved spending time alone, uh, which was but also true, of course, of the author, apparently. He spent many, many hours alone reading. He was a passionate, passionate reader. He knew Shakespeare by heart, Dickens. Um, so again, there's a sort of a parallel between the author and the narrator um, and the character of Don Fabrizio. Um, but there's this, I find this always... This, in the book, this, this this tension between the eternal and the temporal. You know, the opening scene. You know, the prayer and the the the, fa- the chapel in the family uh, home. You got these gods, these pagan gods, uh, on, painted yes. on the ceiling. You know, and the eternal. But at the same time, there's always that little that little ironic uh, undercutting because below of the the gods, uh, what do we have? We have monkeys painted. We have you know all these crazy wildlife paint, painted below the gods. Um, and so there's this this movement back and forth between the eternal yeah. and the temporal. Um, yes. And and then you know Don Fabrizio wants to escape. He wants he, he's a he's he's prone to abstraction. He really loves this abstract world of the stars that you know don't don't have any human affairs. They're just cold and abstract, and and you can actually handle it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, in, as far as the astronomy, at one point it, he refers to it, or it's, he, it's described as his morphine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but dude, you're you're dead on um, the temporal and the eternal, and um, you know it's mirrored a bit in in the way the the church is kind of woven in throughout this book, and the Catholic Church in general tends to sort of be always on that indef- undefined knife edge of the temporal and the eternal, you know, they, uh, they can be, you know, very embedded with the politicians, with the monarchists. They can be very involved with, you know, reaching out to the poor, these kinds of things. But then at the same time, uh, they can be uh, pointing outward, pointing beyond the everyday. And so I think uh, Sicily is, for better or for worse, immersed in a kind of Catholic sort of worldview. And that's certainly, you know, uh, not a central part of this book, but it's it's a cultural Catholicism that just sort of permeates right. the and world it, of these characters. And again, yeah. it, it goes to that split between uh, the eternal, the temporal, or the authentic and the inauthentic, right? Because the, at the end, what yes. do we have? We have the relics. Yes. You know, the exactly. Fabrizio is dead. His daughters are old. And they've been collecting all these relics, you know, yes. uh, like 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 there's a mania for collection, uh, collecting relics. And the book yes. ends with uh, a church official basically being sent to their uh, you know, ancestral home to go through these relics and see what's authentic and what's inauthentic. 
Yes. Um, and, and on a symbolic level, uh, this idea again that the modern forces, and, and I wouldn't say the church represents that, but the idea that people are coming to the Salinas home and saying, what you value is actually garbage. And in fact, right, I think he says like, you know, tw- 20 of the relics are fake and five are, uh, we certify. Right. And then she was in Conchetta, right, at mm-hmm. that point in 1910. is One of the daughters, right. Exactly. She says, well, what do I do with it? And he says, well, you can hold on to it or you can dump it onto the rubbish heap. It's really, mm. it has no value. Mm. And, and, you know, I thought to myself, my goodness, you know, what a symbol of, uh, you know, essentially the Salinas have been worshipping things of no value. In, in a sense, their patrimony, their tapestries, their palaces. Well, the, 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 the things the, had the value, they just become, lost that value, and they were still worshipping it as if they had value, right? Uh, be, better said, yes. Um, e- exactly. And, and then, I mean, there's a real uh, sense of loss. There's a real sense. I mean, that's the sadness that you've alluded to earlier. It's, yes. it's really uh, – yeah, it's just cu- coupled with, with the sense of loss. That's what it is. It's just this loss of a certain way of living, a certain way of uh, approaching uh, society, um, the, the whole nobility, uh, not just of, you know, of, the, you know, of wealth, of, of, of uh, genetics or whatever, you know, being you know, born into a noble family. It's more of a nobility of spirit. Yes. Uh, and again, going from the temporal to the eternal, spirit is eternal, right? Yes. Um, and, and yeah, totally. The sense of loss, I think it, it's naturally connected. Oh, it's so palpable. Memory. It's so palpable in this book. This whole book is just about it, loss. Totally. I, I, like I said, and this is the third time I've read it. And at various times in my life, I've had different things going on. And, and I don't remember feeling the sense of loss, but I, it really hit me uh, this time. And, you know, a kind of sub-theme of loss is sort of this whole idea of memory and how it's tied to the aristocracy and, and at the end of his life um, the prince is, a, is an old man and he's, he knows the end is coming and he's thinking about his grandson uh, Fabrizietto which must be a diminutive right, of right. Fabrizio right? Um, and he says uh, he's thinking about you know my grandson is, is going to maybe have this name that some people recognize as having some past prestige but more or less He's just going to be some, some kid uh, like his schoolfellows, presumably his commoner schoolfellows, who are thinking about you know, snacks and spiteful little games against their teachers, etc. He won't be unique. And he says that um, for the significance of a noble family lies entirely in its traditions. That is in its vital memories. And he was the last to have any unusual memories, anything different from those of other families. And, and that harkens back to uh, a chapter that focuses on Father Perone, or Father Peroni, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And he kind of uh, gets a leave to go visit his family in this very poor village. And, you know, they're all like, wow, you know, you kind of are the, the house priest for this noble family. You know, what, what's the deal? What are they like? And he also struggles to explain the, the characteristics of this. But he, again, gets back to memories. He says... He said, you know, these nobles, they have a very strong collective memory. And so they're put out by things which wouldn't matter at all to you and me, but which to them seem vitally connected with their fortunes, their memories, 
and their hopes. So, I, you know, it's interesting, you know, that the United States, which never really had an aristocracy and certainly never had an official church in any sense. And generally, those are the two institutions that are obsessed with memory and preserve it and, and guard it. And so Americans, you know, are stereotypically forward thinking and, and not very reflective. And I wonder if that's, you know, one reason. Mm. And, and, and this is what Lampedusa is really so sad about because memories can really can be snuffed out. Um, you know, the, the, the fire that just happened in California, you know, you can imagine the people who died, the photographs that were burned, a certain slice of humanity, I think, is gone. Uh, we won't, we won't, it wasn't written down or captured or, you know. Right, right. But I think it's partly, you know, uh, Lampedusa, there, he, he has an essay on Stendhal, which is actually quite good. And I, I, I lifted this one quote from that essay on Stendhal. Um, he calls Stendhal a writer whom delusion has pushed towards ironical comprehension. So a writer whom delusion has pushed towards ironical comprehension, which could be very well said about Lampedusa himself. Um, mm. Because again, I think, I think this, 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 this double irony that I alluded to earlier of the narrator and the character, uh, while the character thinks, you know, Don Fabrizio thinks that, yeah, there's, there's, there's an authentic, that, you know, he's different, he's got some different memories, but the irony of the narrator is basically dismantles that whole idea a little bit, at least in my mind. And the whole, you know, it kind of shows the folly of believing oneself different. Uh, and yeah. of thinking myself, oh. you know, authentic as opposed to inauthentic. Um, a- absolutely, and and I think you, Lampedusa so beautifully gives us access to the the mentality of of the prince mm. that we can we can get wrapped up in his his sense of loss and memory without being able to step back as you as you're suggesting, and and say, you know, there was a certain falseness here, you know, that right. this. Um, well, listen, sorry, I just had this, another quote that I found in my notebook from Derrida, because um, he's talking about irony, and there's so much irony going on in this book that I, I thought this was appropriate. Derrida sort of defines irony as, quote, a power that is preoccupied by a past which has never been present and yeah. will never allow itself to be reanimated in the interiority of consciousness. Yes. Absolutely, dude. And, and I think... Uh, a, a quick segue into politics is, you know, the current propaganda slogan from the United States president um, is that somehow, you know, the United States used to be, you know, quite wonderful and, and, and we've got to return it to that. Now, I don't think he really believes that. but He doesn't realize think, the irony in those statements. <laughs> exactly. But I, but I think it, it taps into um, a, a willful belief among many of us to think that, you know, things were better in the past and um it, it's yeah yeah there's always it's been dead, so, it's always like a golden age that people look back to as a golden age a golden age but i don't know i don't i don't think i don't think really we know when the golden age is actually happening in the present it's impossible yeah. to tell really you know and, and i i think it's the it's simply you know who said it was it forrester or someone said the past is a foreign country mm-hmm. and so we're really just rooting through the relics of, you know, people's personal letters and, and photographs and, and trying to piece it together. But I, I'm not entirely sure we know. I, I do know that that worlds sort of end. I mean, 
again, we've talked a little bit about the fact that you were born in an empire that has disappeared. Yeah. The Soviet Union. I mean, the city I was born, born in has changed its freaking name. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, qu- quick aside, do, do you have a birth certificate that, like, is, that says I you do. were born? I do. I have a birth certificate that says I was born in Leningrad. Yes, I do. Oh, that's so wonderful. I, have, I actually that's, that's... have a, an, an English translation that was notarized and everything for something or other. I still yeah. – it's one of, the, one of the few – Yeah, it's probably the only document I have from Russia, <laughs> an official document, yeah. you know? Because, I mean, yeah. I left so long ago. I left in 1978. So yeah. it's been a while and I was a little kid. So, so, so that world uh, with all its complexities and nuances, good and bad, is done. Um, and your mind can do all sorts of interesting things with that, but it's done. And, and I yep. – you know, that – as I get older, I feel – more and more strongly about that because as you get older there's always the pull of nostalgia and a kind of curiosity and a and and it's like discovering some cool snapshot in the closet and you're like wow you know and you start well i mean remember it's it's gone and yet it's omnipresent right it's 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 sort of in our minds in our in our minds and in our actions and in our in our world i mean it's not gone none of this stuff is gone yet it is gone i mean that's what i'm talking about this sort of this paradoxical um, movement in this novel and just in general, I think, because we we do have echoes of the past. You know, there's a you know, obviously the you know if you don't learn history, you're bound to repeat it type of deal. Um, yeah. So there's, there's we, we don't live in this weird abstraction called the present. There's no present. It's <laughs> it's not here. It, we're kind of stuck between the past and the future, and we do repeat patterns. You know. I think I think psychologically we're pattern based. You know, we, we recognize patterns. We live on patterns. We we get up in the morning. We have our routines, uh, a set thing. You know, but it's kind of does change, but it doesn't really. But I think the, this this book is is a bit of, like like you're saying. I think it is a bit of a text of this. It's kind of like a last testament almost. It's a work yeah. torn from death almost literally because the guy died like shortly yes. after completing it. Uh, yes. It speaks he, of it, ends, it, right? It transits and deaths, um, this this it, ending things. Abs- yeah. Absolutely, and, and the, you know the one joy for him, if there is an afterlife, is he, he has some uh, way to observe the earth. I, I hope he had he preserved a flavor of, of that sort of lost world, right? Um, but I, I, you know, to go back to your earlier point, I don't disagree with you that these things continue to live in our, our thoughts and actions. But I think what I'm sort of pushing back on is, is the human idea of saying that um, is becoming too fascinated with the past mm. and becoming too, too interested in it to the detriment of, of the present. You know, I, Bob Dylan is, you know, I won't say the word hero, but someone I admire and do any interview with him. And he seems completely unattached and uninterested in in the whole past of Bob Dylan and he he almost essentially just says yeah that was an interesting guy named Bob Dylan who lived in 1963 but I'm not that guy anymore right right yeah there's zippo interest in nostalgia and I think that's why he continues to seem vital and Mm -hmm. and um, important and himself yeah no i absolutely agree with you this that this this novel is not nostalgic at all it's not like pining for the days of old you know uh it's just showing how things were during 
of, of, of transition period. I mean, this, you know, this is their, this is the beginning. The, the novel paints a picture of the beginning of the end, and the writer, um, Lampedusa himself, was writing it when things were at the end already. Yeah, I mean, the aristocracy was in complete yes. shambles by the '60s, right, late '50s, right. Um, but when the novel takes place, when the opening scene was it May, I believe May um, 1860, uh, it's just beginning. You know, Garibaldi or Garibaldi, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name with a soft G or a hard G. I've always pronounced. I believe it's, I believe it's Gar- Garibaldi. Yeah, I've heard some people say Garibaldi, which sounds okay. wrong to me. But anyway, so you know, this whole change is just beginning. Garibaldi has just landed on the shores of Sicily. Um, Tancredi. Uh, Lampedusa's nephew, um, again, a very important figure in the book, um, joins with Garibaldi uh, later to just renounce him because, you know, the, the, the unification of Italy kind of went in a different direction, I guess, at that point. Um, yeah. Uh, and also we have, haven't really mentioned um, Don Calogero and Angelica. I think uh, yes. uh, extremely important characters in the book. Huge. Uh, they sort of represent the new uh, bourgeois bourgeoisie, sort of the new up and uh, up and coming class. You know, they used to be kind of poor and just like regular peasants who live uh, in Donna Fugata and sort of serve the prince. Now, through various dealings and social and political maneuvers, this Don Calogero. Uh, is a millionaire, and he's pretty much on par with the prince money-wise, which which makes for a very awkward um, dynamic between this basically peasant who's now just as powerful as the prince. Yes, um, isn't there? Um, there's a again that uh, a wonderful scene that shows the the artistry of Lampedusa to sort of um, represent this so concretely. There's he, you know, as I mentioned, the the family arrives in their country estate at Donna Fugata. And um, I read that quote that, you know, where he, he graciously invites uh, Don Caligari to dinner, uh, which uh, in, in some ways was the beginning of the end for him. But in any case, so he invites him and his family to come and, and, and have dinner. And he's thinking about how to dress. And he's thinking, well, you know, normally for an evening dinner, I would wear a formal attire, tails and all that sort of stuff. But he says, you know, of course... This, this this peasant merchant person wouldn't have these kinds of clothing, so I, I won't show him up. I'll wear uh, more casual clothing. Again, a, a very uh, a classy gesture, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And so right. um, the prince is waiting to receive his guests, and wouldn't you know it, uh, Don Caligari is, is trying to, to mm-hmm. sort of assert his, his aspirations, and he's, of course, wearing tails which really puts the prince in an awkward position. Um, and it really represents that the old ways, the, the, the gesture. The right, except, except those, those tails are, what, mismatched or the wrong of color course. or something. It's, he still messes it uh, up. Of course. It's not like, but, you know. And in fact, uh, Don Fabrizio makes kind of fun of him a little he, bit. He does, but it, I think it, it puts the prince the predictable ways, the, the him being in control, I'll be the humble one, I'll be whatever, is kind of, he didn't expect that. And I think this is what he realizes will be his fate in the decades to come. Constant surprises, constant consternation 
at at upstarts mm. and and uh, industries. But he also he also muses that he also muses that give give the Calageros you know two three generations, and they will be comfortable in that role. They they'll, they will sort of fit into that more genteel, more sort of upper class role. But it's 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 going to take a few generations. Yes, and the prince won't see it. He's um, going to continue to suffer for. He won't see it. 30 right. years, um, the, these kind of changes. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, there's also this like kind of crushing scene towards the end when we're in 1910 with Conchetta, the daughter of the prince, and she's miserable. Mm. Everything she looks around at the palace, she sees death. She sees reminders of loss. And um, at one point, you know, she's looking at this beautiful uh, piece of furniture in her bedroom that has all these little drawers. And the narrator sort of cuts in and, and again, with this kind of modern uh, observation says, you know, she she had this beautiful piece of furniture. And, uh, you know, after the destruction of the palace during World War Two, the this piece of furniture would be the uh, um, uh, owned by this uh, shipping merchant's wife. And so, again, it's this idea of the the patrimony, the the, the important mm. things of the aristocracy being uh, uh you know, taken and subsumed by non-sophisticated industrialists, you know, kind of money-grubbing people, for lack of a better word. (laughs) Um, Hey, what what do you think about the Donna Fugata? It's so well described, and I I absolutely love the scenes where uh, Tancredi and Angelica are sort of, you know, chasing each other, courting, kissing here and there in little dark corners. They find, they sort of, they explore Donna Fugata, which is what, has like a hundred rooms plus type of deal. It's a huge, big palace. Um, they find these weird rooms. Yeah, and what do they find in those rooms, Roman? Apartments. Well, they find some interesting stuff, man. (laughs) I, I don't know. It, It seems like the whip was the most common object. Yeah. After the leopard, after their, you know, their the family um, emblem, the leopard, yes. uh, there's a lot of whips that they find, which made me think almost like that, that some 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 relative of some ancestor of the prince was into S. Oh, oh yes, in fact, because previous yes, this, because the Sicilian Marquis de Sade. I don't know. It was really no, no, strange. no, um, <laughs> like religious flagellation, but also sexual. Both. So, uh, so, so both, prior right. to Tancredi and Angelica discovering that. There's an illusion um, earlier that says, you know, the current Salinas family was more or less, you know, you know, uh, reciting the, hail, the the rosary every night and more or less religious and puritanical. But the previous generation, meaning whatever, the 1820s or something, mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of licentious behavior. And so it's then when they found the kind of the whips and stuff, to me, it was clear that this was. You know, there had been the the, the quote unquote wild sixties uh, at some point in this palace. But how masterfully handled with the prose, oh, just, huh? how how subtly pointed out without any, totally. you know, oh, they found some whips, and you know, they thought, oh, there must have been some funny stuff going on here. No, no, it's just so beautifully described, uh, yes, and so subtle that you're just like, that's why that's I just I love this book because of the subtlety, because the the reader has has room to imagine and to yes. add. To what's being on the what's you know written on the page, yes. and, um, and without going off tracks because the, the 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 prose does keep you on the track. It does tell right. you very precisely, but in very vague, in a very way, vague way of you know where we're sort of 
how to picture well, it. Well, you know, again, thinking the book is being published in 1958 in, in Italy, in a country at, the, at that time, still very mm, dominated by, by the Catholic Church yeah. and the Vatican. And there is, you can definitely write a term paper on the kind of sexual undertones in a lot of it. I mean, Tancredi mm. uh, brings a kind of male sexuality into the palace when he comes that excites everyone. And he actually says this, that we all felt got a boost uh, with the sexual tension between, you know, uh, Angelic and Tancredi. Conchetta, of course, is is really taken. The third wheel. Yeah, with Tancredi. Yeah. And I, here's where I, I, I think I told you before we started recording, I have a wonderful James Joyce tie-in. So I'll, I'll throw it out there, Roman, and see what you think. And, it, and this ties Ooh. into sexuality. Love it. So um, mm-hmm. at one point, uh, the prince and Tancredi are looking at this uh, peach tree, and they're kind of evaluating it. And they've just come from the palace where, again, this sexual tension is swirling. And they both feel it. And the prince is very jealous of the pleasures uh, and the future pleasures that he knows his nephew is going to be indulging in. Of course, the prince has his own pleasures. He goes into Palermo occasionally uh, and visits a, a prostitute. Well, the book opens. The book opens with, 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 with the family prayer. Yes. Right, and the, the and then end of the chapter, the guy, the, the prince goes to a prostitute. Exactly, and of course, I love the fact he brings right. the priest with him, so he 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 violates uh-huh. the uh, uh, the sacrament of marriage, and then he he gets Poor absolution. Father <laughs> oh. Yeah, um, yeah. But real quick here, uh, here's this passage relating to the peaches, and again, this beautiful allusion to sexuality and 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 the, what's going on in the book. It says. So they're looking at this peach tree, and it says, um, but it was big, uh, velvety, luscious-looking, again, looking at the peaches, yellowish, with a faint flush of rosy pink on the cheeks, like those of Chinese girls. I mean, what an amazing uh, metaphor. He says, Mm. the prince gave them a gentle squeeze with his delicate, fleshy fingers. And then he says, they seem quite ripe. A pity there are too few for tonight, but we'll get them picked tomorrow and see what they're like. There, that's how I like you, uncle. This is Tancredi. Like this, in the part of Agricola Pius, appreciating in anticipation the fruits of your own labors, and not as I found you a moment ago, gazing at all that shameless naked flesh. And the prince says, and and yet, Tancredi, those peaches are also products of love, of coupling. And Tancredi says, of course, but legal love, blessed by you as their master, blah, blah, blah. Um, so there's this wonderful mm. sort of play between uncle and nephew about, you know, the the unspoken kind of stuff that's going on. And Roman, uh, I have to assume that Lampedusa knew Ulysses and Joyce incredibly well. Uh, he was an amazingly literate man. And of course, Ulysses was published in 1922. And I, to this day, I still remember this peach sexuality reference in Ulysses. And you probably remember, you probably <laughs> remember the character of Blaise Boylan. And he was... Oh, yes. Blazes. Blazes, Blazes Boylan. Boylan. Yes. And he was the lover of Molly Bloom. And so there's a scene where he's going to go meet with Molly, and he's buying some fruit and some wine at this kind of fruit stand. And so he's talking, and he's flirting a little bit with the, uh, the clerk, this young woman. And, and uh, Joyce writes, you know, she bestowed fat pears neatly, head by tail, and among them ripe, shame-faced peaches. So again... Hmm. Boylan is nice, nice find exactly. there. Yeah, and then a little bit later in the it. dialogue, we, Blaze Boylan, you know, looked into the cut of her blouse, you know, as she's preparing the package, mm. and then a little bit later, 
Uh, bending archly, she reckoned again fat pears and blushing peaches. So, so even this uh, playboy, Blazes Boylan, you know, he, he's about to go cuckold uh, Bloom. Right. And, and, you know. Mr. Bloom. Yeah. Right. And again, this, this connecting peaches with this. And I, and I, I, I wonder if Lampedusa um, unconsciously. You know what? I, that's great. That's a great observation, man. Great find. I, I don't know. But yeah, you're right. He probably did read Ulysses. I mean, he was incredibly well read by all accounts. Um, so. Wow, that's a nice find, so, man. So, you know, kind of wrapping up, um, you know, thoughts, observations, uh, uh, directives for our podcast listeners. Well, you know, that, that final scene, man, just I don't think it will ever leave my head until the moment I die, I think, because it's, um, you know, the prince is dead already. Uh, it's is what, 1910. Uh, his daughters are old. Um, and the dog, of course, the dog who who we meet in the first chapter, Ben. Bendico or Bendico, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, he's sort of this dog is sort of this um, omnipresent constant in this book. It's always in the background, but he somehow, somehow, in a strange way, he is the real hero of this book. <laughs> <laughs> in a strange way, again, not you know, obviously not in a real way, but but in a in a in a kind of a subtle way, he is. And at the end. The dog is now, of course, dead. Long. Spoiler dead. alert. But he's, in, yeah, well, he's embalmed. Spoiler alert. You know, he's embalmed. Well, I mean, there's no spoilers <laughs> here. You know, um, I'm assuming people have read this book or are listening, uh, or if not, it's it's not really going to spoil anything. Um, but um, uh, this 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 figure of this embalmed dog uh, is, um, you know, Conchetta. Uh, I believe she she's the one who tosses him out the window because she just wants to get rid of these old smelly things. She tosses this this rug of a dog and now it's a, a bit of a rug thingy uh, out the window and it's it, it for a, for a split second the figure recomposes itself just for an instant, right? In flight into the form of the heraldic emblem. Uh, a kind of a dancing quote quadruped with long whiskers, its right leg raised in imprecation. And I had to look up imprecation because I didn't know what that word meant, but it means a curse. So it's basically, to my mind, this, this last visual of the novel, of this embalmed kind of dog rug thing, <laughs> old, smelly, uh, dusty, gets tossed out the window. For a split second, you can see the leopard. It assumes the shape of a leopard and with its right leg lay, raised in, in a curse. It's basically giving the finger or something. Uh, to to what I don't know to to history <laughs> I don't know <laughs> but I think it's it's a it's it's probably the most perfect way and very sad I mean you know everybody that I've, I've, I've you know looked up comments from people about this book and people are just like oh poor Bendico poor poor dog um, so it's again the sadness that you alluded to earlier that I think is a central theme here um, at the same time, the irony of the dog raising its leg, whether to pee, kind of, kind of a peeing motion, a, a cursing motion, a, a f- giving the finger, or the Italian, I don't know how to, you know, you, you know that Italian gesture of underarm kind of motion uh, yeah. where you're just like, hey, fuck you type of deal. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a wonderful image. I don't know how, how they handle it in the movie. I, I'm, I'm very curious now. I should look up the end and how it's handled. No, don't. Uh, if yeah, at all. I'm, I'm going to just I'm gonna no? say – if you love this, if you love this book, don't 
don't trust Hollywood circa 1964 or whatever. But look, we've already read it. We're already. No. I think it's. I think it's. I think it's for people who are haven't read it. Maybe they shouldn't watch the movie until left. Right? I mean, the movie by all accounts is pretty yeah. good. I. You know, it's not a bad. It's not a bad sort of uh, treatment of the I, book. I, I have a confession to make. Uh, as as I've always read this book, and it, anything about Sicily, as soon as Sicily comes up, I I everything is suddenly the scene in The Godfather where Michael Corleone, you know, is is hiding out in Sicily and. You know, mm-hmm. walking through the hills with, um, you know, a couple of mafia protectors. For, for some reason, uh, you know, Coppola forever imprinted uh, the Sicilian landscape on my, on my mind. So, Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Me too. Me too. Um, you know, in, I think Corleone is mentioned in this book. Am I? Yeah, there's a name, the name mentioned. Well, I mean, look, the mafia is never really it's, – it's kind of almost in the background here yeah. in some sort of a weird, um, not literal, obviously, sense. But uh, – you know, you can sense the, the violence of Sicily, the the darkness. Um, it's it's the mafia is, is already it's already there in in some sort of a thematic sense. Um, I think totally. you know. I don't totally. know. And, there, and there's this uh, you know wonderful line also where you know again trying to explain the irrationality of Sicilians in the context of being you know messed with for centuries. And I, I'm gonna get I'm gonna make this sound funnier than it is, but. There was this, you know, observation where, like, he's like, look, Sicilians are the kind of people where, like, if you stop them and point to the village on the hill and say, you know, is that Corleone? They'll look and they'll say, mm, no, I don't know. No, I don't think so. I mean, they just the, the default mechanism is to be deceitful and, 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 and just mm. not commit to anything, <laughs> you know, because it gets you killed. I mean, you've got to you got to learn how to survive with the, right. with the master. Um, right. <laughs> oh man, the death man. Death is always is 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 always uh, it's always a sub theme here. Death is always. In fact, one of my favorite quotes from this book um, that I'm still mulling it over because I'm not quite sure if I understand it fully or if it's ever really possible to understand it fully. But um, it's on page fifty of my edition, uh, and it's the prince speaking, uh, and he says the real problem is how to go on living this life of the spirit. In its most sublimated moments, those moments that are most like death. So as he's losing his 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 reality, his world, um, he's retreating into the spirit world, into more so this, the, the the nobility of spirit, as we talked about earlier. Uh, but those moments are sublimated, and, and they're most like death. Um, and again, I'm not sure exactly what to make of it, yeah. except that it struck me as a very important point. Yeah. Uh, for the book, yes, you know. Well, so I think that's probably a good, good, good place to yeah, end. I'll, it. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw one more thing out, and I'll just say for those who have read uh, "Love in the Time of Cholera" by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I, I could not help thinking that uh, Marquez, um, particularly the character of Doctor Urbino, this kind of uh, upper class, uh, educated man reflecting back on his life, it, it reminds me very, very much of The Prince. And I, I have to think that Marquez uh, must have stole a few tricks from uh, The Leopard. Uh, if anybody likes mm. that book, it's one of my, one of my favorites. Um, so yeah, man, let's wrap it up. Uh, our next book is Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, The Left Hand of Darkness. So we're going to kind of really pivot. American writer, 
um, science fiction. And we'll actually have um, a special guest. He's the South African writer Heston Hoffman, who actually lives here in Portland, a friend of mine. And uh, Heston? Heston Hoffman. His name is Heston? And uh, It's almost like Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, yeah, H-E-S-T-O-N. <laughs> and um, he is a, uh, a huge reader of uh, science fiction in, in, in addition to literature in general and I think he'll have a lot to add and, and uh, Roman I know that science fiction is something that you've been dying to talk about I I, I think yeah. I will represent maybe a lot of the listeners who aren't as familiar so I'm excited to I, I know I have some questions for both you and Heston as far as to kind of think about sci-fi oh, I'm looking yeah, forward to it definitely, so definitely. That, that will probably be um, maybe closer to uh, mid-December near Christmas uh, when that'll be Appearing, and then after that, we're going to be doing um, a pretty big German novel, right, Roman? Yeah, anniversaries by Uwe yeah. Johnson. So, uh, be, uh, which I started, by the way, I started, and it's awesome. Okay. And and um, I have to just plug my own life here. I'll, I'll be taking a, a break and going to Spain, uh, so I'm excited to actually see uh, some bookshops in Madrid and Barcelona. And, and, you know, my dream, Roman, is to walk into a cafe in Madrid and see Javier Marias, uh, the great Spanish novelist who is a... Oh, oh, oh. Speaking yes. of, uh, he has a nice little piece on Lampedusa. What? If you Google Marias, yeah, just it's like it's not anything super deep. Uh, it's just Google, Google Lampedusa and Marias, oh, Javier Marias, you'll get I, it. It's like, you know, five times I think read. The, the coincidence is here to... I, I believe that I'm going to walk into a cafe in Madrid or a tapas bar and see him because <laughs> apparently you know, he writes a, a, a weekly column for um, uh, El Mundo, right? And is very involved, like a, a habituate, habituate of Madrid's daily life. So, Oh, that'd be awesome, man. I, I hope you do. I hope you bump into him. Say hi for um, me if you do. You know, <laughs> uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe someday we can, we can look at one of his books. Um, all right, dude. So that's it. Uh, again, uh, you can follow Roman uh, on Twitter at uh, Senju, and you can follow me at Robert Fay One. And also, just to let folks know, we now have um, the Feeling Bookish podcast on iTunes, so you can download it there. And if anybody uh, cares to to write a review, that will that will be quite helpful. Um, if you hate it, you know, let us know as well. So, and of course, you can also find uh, the podcast on SoundCloud. So thanks again, and Roman, enjoy your day, and we'll we'll talk soon. Have fun in Spain, man. Ciao. Bye.